0: Welcome to the How We Did It podcast. Mike Lesseter here. Today's interview is with Amity Technologies' Howard Dahl, part of the one of the most important farm equipment families our industry has seen. Having done several stories and interviews with Howard over the years, we would describe him as a Southern gentleman type. But that doesn't really seem to fit all that well for a North Dakota guy. Perhaps a village elder works best. Either way, we're talking about a calm demeanor from a sage leader we respect who has seen it all and who openly and willingly shares to help his fellow man. And for a fresh approach with Howard, and for you as well, today's recording is presented through the Q&A of our own Daryl Inc., a longtime executive editor and publisher in our ag division.
1: So Steiger went from two million to 105 million in sales in six years, and the factory sits less than a mile from where we're sitting right now. And it's just for me a great deal of personal satisfaction to see the Steiger name still on case. Tractors throughout the world, and to see bobcats uh, everywhere I go in the world.
0: That's Howard Dahl talking about how his family, with the Bobcat loader and the Steiger tractor, among others, secured their heritage in farm equipment history even before he launched the Concord air drill. Today, he and his brother Brian lead Amity and several related companies, including a joint venture with Agco. Daryl dropped in to see Howard in Fargo during his recent six-state journey. They met for the morning interview in Howard's second story office at the Amity Building in Fargo. What follows today is the best of that conversation, including stories of innovation, business, exports, family, M&A, and life lessons too. It's a great dialogue with lots of historic names throughout. Howard's grandfather, E.G. Melrow, Uncle Les Melrow, Father Eugene Dahl, the Keller brothers, the Christiansons, and some famous equipment brands that many of you won't realize had origins in the Melrose and Dahl family tree. It's a great dialogue with lots of historic names throughout. Got to say thanks to Osmondson Manufacturing for their continued support as we enter the very last leg of the series. So let's get on with it. The How We Did It Conversations podcast with third generation farm equipment leader Howard Dahl and the questions of Daryl Brugging.
2: Go ahead and kind of introduce yourself on camera just and just a few words about what you do at the company and uh, a little bit about the company itself so
1: well i started the company predecessor company concord Mm -hmm. incorporated actually been at this address since april 23rd 1979 Uh, after we sold concord to case corporation the same day we sold it, we started a new company called Amity Technology. We could not keep the name Concord because Case wanted it, but Amity means the same as Concord. It means harmony, mutual agreement, a partnership working together. So it, it, Amity and Concord are synonyms. And uh, with Amity, we primarily built sugar beet equipment in our early years. And that's still the major product we have is sugar beet harvesting equipment.
2: And now you've got yourself and your brother?
1: My brother Brian, Brian yeah.
2: Right, and uh, and you started Concord back in 1977 and Amity was yeah. after
1: Concord. Yeah, so my brother and I have been partners uh, really since uh, August 31st, 1977, and he was still a college student at the time, but I wanted him as a, a partner in the business.
2: Talk about what Amity manufactures today around, you know, here in the U.S. and distributing throughout the
1: world. In our Fargo operation, it's, uh, sugar beet harvesters, sugar beet defoliators, and sugar beet carts, that's our core business. Uh, most of our team members have split loyalties. They're on the sugar beet side as well as on the uh, seeding and tillage side that we have in our joint venture with AGCO in our Wapton operation. So we build a shank drill, a precision shank drill, and uh, a single disc drill. and. Uh, so for seeding, both those products have gotten a lot of traction in areas, and uh, and then we actually build a machine, almost a complete replica of the old Concorde, and we sold a lot of those overseas, a number of them domestically, but the uh, bulk of them have gone into the Kazakhstan market.
2: Now, these would be things that were either left over of, you know, when Case bought Concorde back in 96, or these are some new things that you've developed since... Well,
1: the, The air-till drill we built is very, very similar to the old Concorde. We had a 10-year non-compete with Case, and won't go into all the details of that, but uh, we clearly honored it. And then in 2007, uh, we got back into the air-seater business in a slow way at at first. Uh, We built a double-disc drill, a very conventional one, as well as a comparable product to the old Concorde then developed our single disc drill, which we have uh, running in a lot of uh, countries right now. And uh, and obviously there's a big difference from 1996. There's a lot of different companies building air seeders now and building large air seeders. It, uh, it was very different in 1996 when we sold the case.
2: So tell me back how you kind of arrived at the name Amity for the company. You kind of alluded to it earlier, but tell me about how how you came about you know, the naming of the companies. Well,
1: the original dream for Concord was to build a small tractor for third world agriculture. I had worked at International Harvester in their marketing research department and became sensitized to uh, extreme poverty and the lack of any mechanization uh, that was appropriate for uh, small farms in Africa, India, various other countries, uh, China at that time. And uh, so when I moved to Fargo, I uh, was going to start working at Steiger in their marketing research department, but it was actually a downturn in the tractor business at that time. And I thought it would be not a good thing if I took a job in the same department where a couple of good people were being laid off. So instead of going to work directly with Steiger said I, I'm going to go ahead and follow this dream of trying to create this tractor. And so my wife and I spent an evening in Roger, Roger's thesaurus and we, looking for a word that we felt sounded like a machine and had a really good meaning that could be transliterated into French, Spanish, various languages. And the word concord uh, came out to be the ideal word uh, meaning friendship, mutual agreement, partnership, harmony, and so it, uh, it was a word we liked, and uh, we actually are buying, uh, Case had dropped the trademark for Concord in some areas, and so we are uh, recapturing the name and are looking at using it in selective uh, fashion. So,
2: But that also translates well, as you mentioned, over to Amity.
1: We could not keep the name Concord because Case wanted it, but Amity means the same as Concord. Concord sounds a little more robust, Amity, a little softer, but uh, it's, but we we like, uh, and we try to carry out the meaning of both words in all our relationships with our employees and customers, uh, looking at each relationship uh, very seriously.
2: Can you kind of go over each of your various holdings?
1: In in Fargo, we have a uh, little over 100,000 square feet okay. in the buildings, but actually four four different uh, buildings we own and uh, have just under 100 employees for our bee equipment business here. We, we do have about 20 employees in Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan. In Wapatin, we have 330,000 square feet at our tillage and seeding equipment plant and uh, seasonally adjusted around 130 employees there.
2: So you are the third generation in the family, correct? believe. Right. Just walk us through who each of the three generations have been.
1: Well, my mother's father, E.G. Melrow, was a very interesting man who didn't like the way most of his machinery worked. And so he was continually tinkering, changing, and inventing. And he really invented the windrow pickup to go on the front of combines. and. The first patented uh, unit that he developed, he sold to John Deere the patent because he needed some money to pay for medical expenses after he had a heart attack and the amputation of his leg. That was in the 30s. uh, During World War II, while three of his sons were at war, he made a greatly improved windrow pickup that became the standard for farmers throughout the upper Midwest and Western Canada for years and years. And uh, then he had invented a a harrow weeder that became a standard unit for sugar beet farmers in uh, this area and many, many others. And uh, then he died. His sons and my father uh, took over ownership and running of the business. And uh, three years after he died, uh, they bought the rights to a very primitive loader that uh, was not a skid-steer loader. It was an independent clutch system with a sort of a tricycle wheel at the back. And uh, out of that came, uh, within just uh, three, four years, really the model of the Bobcat loader that we all know today. And uh, they grew that company uh, rapidly throughout the 60s and in 1970 sold it to Clark Equipment. And uh, about the same time it was sold, my Uncle Les bought control of Steiger Tractor, which, which was a uh, very small company doing about $2 million of revenue. And uh, my Uncle Les basically uh, exhausted his resources after a year and he persuaded my father uh, to come in as a major investor, CEO. And my dad brought in a team of people and there's a lot that went into the growth, but the most significant factor was the Russian wheat failure of 1972. And uh, the amount of income uh, our farmers realized in 73, 74 was so dramatic and farms expanded so rapidly that the need for high horsepower tractor and Steiger serendipitously, it. Uh, was just great for Steiger. So Steiger went from 2 million to 105 million of sales in six years. And the factory sits uh, less than a mile from where we're sitting right now. And it's just, for me, a great deal of personal satisfaction to see the Steiger name still on case tractors throughout the world and to see Bobcats uh, everywhere I go in the world. I have nothing to do with either of their success, but uh, but I certainly, uh, claim a heritage that I'm very very proud of. As
2: we go through each of the generations uh, again your grandfather was E.G. Melrose uh, and that was your mother's dad yeah. correct and I understand he might have had some even equipment dealer roots?
1: Or? Right he, they, they did have a Massey Ferguson dealership in Gwynner for a short time. The farm dealership while well, the factory was going and I it was no longer a dealership, let's say, by the time I reached at least four or five years old. But I, I do remember as a very, very young kid, uh, you know, a small equipment dealership, yeah. yeah.
2: And, and you mentioned, too, he had some hard times.
1: Yeah, he lost his farm in 1929. And so my mother, as a five-year-old and her siblings, and both younger and older, moved from a, a decent home to a home with no running water, no indoor plumbing. And that's where my mother spent her formative years. So no, it was not easy.
2: Back to the, the Melrose Bobcat, um, do you recall kind of the genesis of what, how that really came about and, and how were tasks being done before the Bobcat came into <laughs> existence? So,
1: You know, every story has different versions of it. And I will try to capture the Bobcat story as uh, my father... Believes it to be the case, and my father's been dead now ten years. But uh, and, and if you studied Aristotle, there's uh, when you look at causality, what causes things. There's a, a whole bunch of final cause, efficient cause. There's uh, and and likewise in any product, the proper story is many, many people have uh, part of the the success uh, have, have a certain measure in creating the successful story of whatever, whatever it is. Uh, there was a farmer named Eddie Velo from Ratsay, Minnesota, who got so tired of cleaning out his turkey barns uh, with a shovel and pitchfork. And uh, he thought about it and he, he said, I think we could build a machine to maneuver around all these poles in the turkey barns and make it a lot easier. And Eddie uh, Velo thought about the versatile uh, clutch system, the uh, versatile swather had this independent clutch system where it would just basically turn in a circle. And uh, he he thought that's a pretty good idea. And he went to a blacksmith shop in Rotsay, Minnesota. They uh, weren't interested, didn't have time to do it and they then the guy said there's another shop and so he went to the keller brothers louis and cy keller and uh, they indeed went ahead and built a machine for eddie baylow that did uh, functionally do you know what what he wanted and uh, keller brothers thought uh, you know we could go into business and you know sell a number of others and uh, i believe they did build uh, approximately 10 machines, and they were showing it at the Minnesota State Fair, and my uncle, Les Malroe saw it. And uh, as we s- often say about Les, he couldn't read a financial statement, he couldn't read a blueprint, but he saw the future, and uh, he was just so excited about it and persuaded his uh, brothers, my dad, that uh, this is the future. and so. Our family made an arrangement with the Keller brothers. They moved to Gwinter. Uh They and a team of engineers worked on it, uh, and uh, the first machine I actually have uh, here, <laughs> and uh, it's it's like like this. So it has this, uh, and it was. And I used to drive this as a ten-year-old, and uh, very very unstable if you'd go up on a side hill it was easy to tip over and over the course of the next uh, few years uh, the bobcat as it's now known was created with the independent clutch uh, where it would turn in its tracks and uh, the first ones did not have a roll cage so you still could tip them and then And the first ones were all mechanical chain drive as this uh, uh, 610 model that was built all the way till I believe, 1979. But hydrostatics took over very quickly and uh, the Bobcat as we know it today is obviously the standard for that all skid steers uh, compare themselves with.
2: And to look back at that and see how many are out there, it's got to be quite amazing to know your history the family was involved yeah. in that you know, in, in part of that and yeah. bring it
1: to the market and well it's clear the uh, the fina- the Melro family committed the finances to make it possible and there were times they questioned whether this was a smart decision because it did take a lot of resources but uh, today there are, i believe 1.4 million bobcats that have been built and uh, it's still by far the dominant uh, player in in the market so
2: well then your, your dad and your uncle they more or less they're playing the fame as Steiger and my understanding is they, they kind of in just five years took it from sales of two million to 105 million so what do you recall of, of that as far as what they were able to do with Steiger and, and why they were able to, to to grow it like they did
1: well my uncle Les basically took and, and the bobcat company was sold for a lot of money in in today's dollars it was a very high sum but my uncle Les was completely out of money within 12 months buying a thousand head of Charley cattle uh, real estate in phoenix steiger and, and who knows what else and he came to my dad and said we can't even complete a tractor and so i've read the uh, transcripts of a antitrust lawsuit uh, that Steiger was involved in, an in international harvester. I actually sat in the case in, in Chicago in 75, but as I recently reread the transcripts, on day one, when dad went into Steiger, he had to guarantee $6 million of credit just to keep the company going, in today's dollars, $6 million, and he took no salary, and uh most importantly, hired a team of people that he just believed in deeply. And uh, uh, Jack Johnson had been head of uh, production for Bobcat. Uh, Len Odie had been close friend of dad's and head of uh, uh, purchasing and then became president of Willrich. And uh, uh, dad said, I'm not going to go into this and make all the financial commitment without a team of people. So when Jack Lennon and a couple others agreed to come on board. He made the commitment financially, and he told me I'm going to risk uh, my fortune on this, but uh, he said, blood is thicker than water, and I need to help my brother-in-law. And so it was a real challenge at first, but uh, because of a great team of people, they uh, became the leader in four-wheel drive tractors.
2: You had mentioned that your, your dad died in 2008. Are there some specific lessons or, or traits that he kind of left with you that you learned from him? So.
1: All who knew him uh, would agree with my cousin David, who became treasurer of Bremer Bank in uh, uh, the Twin Cities. And at, at Dad's funeral, David came to me and he said, your dad is the only person I've known in my entire life who I never heard a bad word said about. And I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. And I thought about that, and that is a very profound statement. Uh, he was very, very smart. He was a math and chemistry major, uh, chemical engineering major at uh, Michigan State. His uh, class was drafted into the in- infantry, but because of his skill set, he became a cryptographer at the Battle of the Bulge. and. Uh, um, Still could do calculus at the age of 75, and, uh, but, uh, but very, uh, very quiet in the way in which he did his leadership. He felt his role was a coach to put the right team on the field and uh, just to make sure he had the right people. And then a big part of his role was to encourage them. And then when the tough decisions needed to be made, uh, he was there to make them.
2: What attracted you to wanting to continue in the, you know, with the family and be the next generation?
1: And, and Didn't have any expectations like that. I I was originally, I I'd, I'd finished a master's degree in philosophy of religion, thinking I wanted to teach, and uh, by working at International Harvester in their marketing research department, became really interested in global agriculture, and uh, so I guess. Part of it is DNA. I grew up in this family of uh, equipment manufacturers, but part of it was seeing uh, that food production could be a a wonderful thing to give assistance to. And and so those uh, factors uh, resulted in a change of career, but I actually did continue to teach for four years while starting Concord uh, at Concordia College locally
2: parent each of the generations as far as their, their style or their business style and maybe what each learned from each other. So,
1: Well, my observations of the Bobcat Company would all be as uh, a very young child going out taking uh, uh, lunch to my uncles and hired men when they were combining because our family had a very large farm and that supported them the Melrose factory in the early years. So in all three generations, hard work would be a a, a central factor. Um, But uh, I'd I'd say the main word would be innovation, just a passion for innovation. And maybe the second word uh, was an optimism that uh, when somebody says you can't do something, it's just a greater challenge that uh, I think we can do it in spite of uh, all the odds. And so there, uh, if you look at the budget, engineering budget of the Melro Company, if you look at the engineering budget of Steiger versus Deer, Deer had a much greater four-wheel drive engineering budget and could not create a great tractor, in fact, uh, met dear executives with my father in 85, and they said, uh, it's embarrassing to us that you with a much smaller budget have created such a superior tractor. I mean, it was direct words out of Bob Hansen's mouth. And uh, and so it was a sense of, we can do it. And uh, this just can-do attitude. And, uh, and we've tried to emulate that uh, Imperfectly, but uh, I, I guess innovation and just an optimism that uh, it can be done would be.
2: It probably goes back to farmers. Quite often, are the ones who they, they have to figure things out on yeah. the fly and, and find better ways. Yeah.
1: And, and every farmer is a risk taker. I mean, you put in a crop every year. It's a it's a risky business, and so in that respect, uh, in the manufacturing business we. We do understand our, our customer, and I, and I think that's one thing we've, in all three generations, trying to be very close to your customer, listening to them as to what they want.
2: Again, I've been uh, with No-Till Farmer here for the better part of probably 15 years, and of course worked with Frank Lesser closely. And I think it was him that told me that hearing that you discovered Concord was really kind of a good product for no-tillers, in direct cedars and it was almost, I think he said it was almost kind of by accident. So I don't know if you can recall kind of what happened or
1: you know, yeah, what that I, was. So. I absolutely uh, can recall. And uh, coincidentally, just a couple days ago, the board members, founding board members of the Manitoba North Dakota No-Till Association were meeting at Joe and Gene Brecker's Lodge uh, just about an hour from, a little over an hour from here. And uh, a number of them that I knew very well called to greet me, but I I was tied up in meetings and uh, finally talked to one person at the end of the day. And it was just an incredible reunion for these people to get together on a dream that they created in uh, late 70s, 1980, somewhere in in that area. Well, I was asked to speak at the Manitoba, North Dakota, no-till association meeting in mine, and I believe it was 82 and I was not aware at that time that our machine was an ideal machine for direct seeding or, or no-till. So it, it was designed primarily to be just a really good air seeder that would put seed in the ground uh, at an even depth and pack. Uh, most of the air seeders to that time did not have adequate packing. And so our patented breakthrough was our packing system. and. Uh, yeah, so it was uh, it wasn't designed from day one to we're going after the no-till market, but uh, a large percentage of the uh, leaders of the Manitoba, North Dakota, and then in in Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan and Al- Alberta as well. So I spoke at many of their conventions over the years, and uh, gradually became uh, fully aware of the of the merits of the product we would created.
2: So would you say that? You know, no-till really played a pretty big role in the growth of your cedars here and even in overseas. And, and yeah. likewise, do you feel like it uh, helped with the growth of no-till as well, your, your equipment? Well, I,
1: I don't think there's any, any question. I, I have a lot of anecdotes of uh, individuals that I'd known for a lot of years that uh, would come to me and say, I watched my neighbor with your machine, year one, year two, year three, year four, I knew he was going to fail. I knew it just couldn't work uh as he was doing no tillage and just planting into the previous crop re- crop residue i I knew he was going to fail, and after six years of him having better crops than me, I finally bought your machine this happened to be uh, a prominent seed grower who was a friend of my real close friend of my uncle's uh, my late uncle and uh he just said, shame on me for being so skeptical, and uh, I love your machine. And so I had loads and loads of stories. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it was a remarkable uh, experience to watch the Concorde air cedar uh, develop to where it became, uh, well, The floating hitch that we had became the standard design and and row by row packing for everybody else and uh, having a variety of openers, whether it was a very, very narrow opener to get virtually no disturbance to where in Siberia and other places, people wanted to kill weeds while they're planting, so they put a wide sweep on the unit. So we had, I would expect 20 different openers that were put on on the unit. It it all depending on the uh, requirements.
0: We'll get back to Daryl's conversation with Howard Dahl in just a second, but first a word about Osmondson Manufacturing, which has steadfastly supported us in this project on family-run equipment manufacturers. Visit them at www.osmondson.com. You'll find their own family history, dating back to 1903, quite interesting as well. And now, back to Daryl and his morning chat with Howard Dahl of Amity.
2: Do you, do you recall what was the decision behind you know, selling the, the, the Melrose or the, the Bobcat uh, product and selling that uh, the, at the time? Do you recall?
1: Yeah, I sure do. Um, success is sometimes not handled well. And uh, a couple of my uncles uh, started messing around. They got a divorce. Uh, some of my cousins were sent to boarding school of what was once a very happy family. It was a very very tough time the late 60s. Uh, and so to have some liquidity to finance some divorces was part of the factor. But I think part of the factor was uh, realizing all of a sudden you have a global company and can we really do all that's necessary and uh, But I was not involved in any of the decision-making. I just know what my dad said. And it was a divided opinion. My dad did not want to sell, and at least one of my mom's brothers did not want to sell. And so there were five votes, and uh, the uh, decision was made to sell. But uh, I'd say a big part of it was some uh, realization that either you needed to do an IPO uh, or bring in some to, to grow the business to what it really could become
2: I understand even before the Bobcat there were like I think you alluded to some of these there were several inventions that kind of came off that melt roll farm Can you recall some of the products innovations that just came off that off that farm
1: well off the farm really would have been just the windrow pickup and the and the harrow uh, weeder. there were some other products that the Melrose Company, and some they bought, the spray coop. There uh, was a farmer from North Dakota who had invented uh, the spray coop, and it was pretty crude when the Melrose Company bought it, but grew it to be a significant uh, product. The and Plow, again, uh, Ed Wrighton from Cooperstown, North Dakota, sold his business, it became part of the Melrose product offering. Uh, there was a grain drill, that eventually became, I believe, part of Lilliston Corporation. and uh, So there were a number of other products added to, but the Bobcat dwarfed everything else and so Clark Equipment eventually uh, realized the uh, all the farm equipment uh, was uh, such a tiny part that they divested themselves of, of each of the products.
2: Going to Concord, and that you kind of talked a little bit too, that's a vision that It kind of stemmed from your personal experience at International Harvester um, and working abroad too. So tell me about how that all came about again.
1: Try to shorten the whole story, but uh, when we moved here in 77 and worked on a small tractor project, it just coincidentally, my dad always liked to have farmland that he could drive out and see crops growing. And so when they moved to Fargo, he bought a couple quarters of land just outside of Fargo. And the person he had farmed them, uh, Jake Gust, a very gifted engineer who is still working for us today. He's, uh, I believe, 83 years old. And uh, he worked on the small tractor, and then air seeders were starting to come in. And uh, Jake said, I think there's a place for developing a better uh, air seeder, better seating equipment. And uh, so we, first of all, bought a Massey Ferguson uh, chisel plow and put grain boxes on it and planted just without air delivery, but just to get an idea of what it was like to do this new style of planting. Uh, And uh, then Jake said, we need to have much better packing. And so it was his concept of uh, pneumatic tires that would move latitudinally and longitudinally during the field. And so you'd have even packing across the... uh, whole seeding machine it was just a a great uh, breakthrough in thinking and so we built a prototype in 81 but we didn't have a floating hitch on that prototype we were looking at some hydraulic mechanism to level the hitch and uh, so the first few we had some problems with but after we did the floating hitch uh, we we knew that we had something very special Um, For the air delivery, uh, uh, our VP of sales and marketing, Daryl Justison, who just retired uh, a year ago, had been sales manager in the U.S. for Prasco, was very frustrated with some of the things Prasco was doing and said, there's some things we need to do to build a better air delivery system, and so Daryl brought his ideas and thoughts and with our engineers, created uh, the Concorde air system as we know it. And we still are using s- so much of the technology from the original uh, Concorde. And uh, it's simple, and a lot of farmers really like it. So mm-hmm. that's that's really how it, how it began.
2: The story, as I understand it, too, was that... Um as you look through the years, but you, when you came out with it, you sold, I think, about 600 units or so into Russia before John Deere had before sold
1: Before they'd the even sold one. Before yeah.
2: they even sold one. So yeah. What, yeah. how did that all come about?
1: Well, a couple of Canadian brothers who were the largest furniture manufacturer in Canada, uh, of Mennonite background, whose parents had fled Russia, uh father in 1919 mother in 1929 were revisiting their their roots and these brothers had helped us with some investment in uh, the late 80s it was very important for us during the difficult 80s and they were visiting uh, their ancestral uh homes and uh, and in doing that met a uh, agricultural science, soil scientist who said we need much better seeding equipment in Russia, we desperately need uh, and so we shipped five units over in the fall of 1991 and they were very very successful. Now we had been doing work in Czechoslovakia in 87, 88, 89 before the Berlin Wall fell and had uh, in fact I spoke to the National Academy of Sciences in Prague uh, Czechoslovakia and. 87 on no-till farming and The unit we had there being tested We had 80% less fuel Being used in our system versus theirs and we had about a 20% yield increase and so they were very very excited But when the Berlin wall fell all the people we dealt with were gone I mean the system just completely changed so so in 91 is a uh, our first entry into Russia and Kazakhstan, and uh, and just had some very rapid uh, growth there.
2: As we take up to ninety six, what what happened in ninety six at that point led to the decision to you know to look at the years coming up to it and get coming to ninety six. So,
1: well, again, this is uh, a lot of voices in the room, but on June twelfth, nineteen ninety five. Case came into my office, which was just a a block west of here at that time. We still had this building, but we also, we were growing so rapidly, we had a much bigger building just to the west here. And uh, Case came in in the morning, said, we're really interested in buying your company. And that afternoon, John Deere called and said, we're really interested in buying your company. So the same day, it was just, there was no coordination, just pure coincidence, but we had such rapid Growth and uh, in Canada, the five largest John Deere dealers did not sell Deere air seeders; they only sold ours. And in the U.S., most of our dealers were case dealers, and so we were uh, growing rapidly. We we just couldn't build enough machines every year. We turned down orders every year from '91 through '95, uh, and uh, so at our at our board meeting. Now, my mom's health was not real good at the time and uh, we just uh, felt the liquidity event would be uh, a good thing and there was a belief that I was going to continue deeply engaged with Case and continuing to grow the Concord business and uh, so I had a half-time commitment to Amity and half-time commitment to Case to continue to grow the business. And that was going really, really well until Fiat bought Case. Fiat owned FlexCoil, uh, Case now Concord, and there became a big uh, conflict the decision, even though we had the dominant uh, market share in the U.S. and in Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, uh, the uh, New Holland or Fiat Voices one out, and uh, they eventually actually shut down the Concord operation. Tried to merge it into Flexcoil, and they took the number one and number two Air seater businesses in the world, and in five years made it number seven. And so, it's it's one of the. If you look back, it's just a heart heartbreak what happened. We uh, we had uh, some great things uh, going and if case were still had still owned concord i believe we would have been the dominant uh, player in the world and uh, i probably would have retired a few years ago and, and but it, spending half my time uh, on on the continued growth of the concord business so
2: you were out of the seating equipment business for 10 years due to to not compete right. with the rules so tell us about the decision to get back in and why
1: well it's uh Part of it was a couple of our former Concord employees saw that Case just completely shut down a very simple single or double disc drill that Case had made. They scrapped it. And so a couple of our former employees said, we can uh, do a meaningful business just resurrecting that product. So they hired us to do the engineering and manufacturing for them. So on a contract basis, we, uh, we did that. And uh, they had some success. They sold a lot of units, particularly in the Red River Valley here, and quite a few units into Ukraine. And uh, then we uh, became aware that there was a single-disc drill that had been invented in Australia, that it was a high-speed single-disc drill that looked very, very interesting. And uh, they did not have the capacity to really develop it. And so we actually bought the Fargo Products Company. and. Uh, and their key, key, key people, Jack Oberlander, who had been our service manager at Concord and was president of Fargo Products, and Gene Brecker, his uh, partner, and Peter Christensen was, uh, of Titan was the main owner of Fargo Products. So we uh, purchased Fargo Products and uh, and at that point was got back into the Air Cedar business.
2: Well, let's maybe look at a little history and timeline with the, you know the most recent company. So you were you had the founding of Amity, Willrich and and Wishick, right?
1: Willrich yeah. we bought okay. out of bankruptcy uh, with my brother and I and two other partners in in 2001. Willrich had lost a lot of money and uh, I think most people had given up on it and uh, we uh, purchased it in uh, 2001 out of bankruptcy. We were able to turn it around very slowly and uh, and because of significant export business beginning in about uh, 2005 saw the business do very well. The owner of Wishick, Mitch Bosch in Wishick, North Dakota was really tired of running the business and he approached us at Amity about buying it and we agreed to buy it at Amity but then we thought uh, Wilrich is a tillage business, so we chose to purchase it at Wilrich instead of at Amity. And and we had a little bit different shareholders in both companies, but uh, that was 2006. And we saw especially unbelievable growth with Wishik, with the uh, clearing of a bunch of land in Russia, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan that had not been farmed for years. And then when CRP ground went out of uh, Uh, CRP into production. The Wishick was an ideal heavy disc to go into that CRP ground and uh, reclaim it. So uh, we had uh, some remarkable sales uh, with with that. And uh, we had to shut down the Wishick operation, unfortunately, and moved it into our Wapton operation.
2: The founding of Amity, it happened pretty much almost immediately after Concord.
1: The same day the same, same day we sold the case we case wasn't interested in our sugar beet equipment and so we uh, started amity the same day mm-hmm
2: interesting so that that obviously took some planning uh, yeah. once you knew that you were going to be selling and yeah. and be ready to move so how what was that process like was it difficult to to make be ready to make that transition to a new company
1: well we we had bought the sugar beet equipment company a year before so we and and we had done some manufacturing for them but it's mm-hmm. but for actually owning the sugar beet equipment uh, concord owned the sugar beet equipment for one year before we sold the case. But Case was not interested in the sugar beet equipment, so we uh, had to do something with it, and so that's why we started Amity the same day.
2: Right, and then uh, talk about Fargo products again.
1: 2007 we bought Fargo products.
2: And the reason behind uh, and, and what they brought to the table for
1: you? What was the air seeding technology. You know, a lot of the uh, vestige of the uh, Concorde technology was there and then the single-disc drill uh, became part of it.
2: Right. And then that was followed up with the joint venture with AGCO, yeah. right? Tell us a little bit about how that all came about. Yeah,
1: um, it's like all conversations, there's many facets of it, but uh, AGCO did not have an air seeder line, you know, global company without an air seeder. And in much of the world, uh, particularly all of the former Soviet Union uh, Tractors were sold almost always in tandem with an air seeder. And uh, we uh, were experiencing some meaningful sales in that marketplace. So we have uh, more than a couple hundred of our air seeders in Kazakhstan mainly sold with versatile tractors. And uh, and then likewise in, in Russia, Ukraine. And uh, AGCO uh, was looking for filling out their product line. And... Uh, But all the AGCO dealers had loyalty to some other uh, air seeder in Canada and various other markets. And so we're still, with AGCO, working through the long-term strategy of making the air seeder a more central part of their, uh, their dealer offering.
2: And then I think I also saw that uh, an electric electronics company, uh, the Intelligent Ag Solutions.
1: Right. So yeah, Barry Batchelor, who founded John Deere's electronics company, and I started Intelligent Agricultural Solutions and created the flow and blockage uh, sensor using acoustics versus electronics. And it's been very successful, but Agco discovered the, uh, the capabilities of Barry and said, we we really want to be a partner with Barry ongoing. So we actually sold our share of intelligent agricultural solutions to them. But part of that uh, was what we call our farm QA business, farm quality assurance. And uh, we do have a separate business from Amity, although Amity's a major shareholder, I'm a major shareholder. And uh, we're creating a data-driven uh, software for management of uh, big data in agriculture and uh, just watching that company emerge.
0: Hi, this is Frank Lesseter from No-Till Farmer, which is the original publication in the Lesseter Ag Media's portfolio. If you're interested in the best of what farmers are doing in soil health, fertility, cover crops, and a variety of seeding and planting innovations, you'll want to check out our No-Till Farmer podcast. You can search No-Till Farmer on your favorite podcast station to subscribe to this informative twice-a-month
2: podcast. Now back to Mike and the How We Did It podcast. The Russia thing is, is quite interesting, how you really seized into, the, in, into that market. You were probably one of the first Americans, if I understand right, to do any business there, right. and that started way back when. Fall of 91. Fall of 91. And you, you, you got a lot of units in there immediately. How many tri- trips do you think you've made to Russia overall?
1: <laughs> uh, next Sunday, a week from uh, Sunday, I'll make my 89th trip, but who's counting?
2: And I 89 trips And the opportunity there you, the, the what was actually the void in the product the, the trends that you saw and, and the way that you business that allowed you really to, to get into Russia
1: Well, you had very large wheat farms, which was just ideally suited for our equipment and uh, their equipment was terrible and uh, and you needed simple machines and so our Concord is we, put it there was very, very rugged. In fact, so rugged that one of our first five concords that we sold in the spring of 1982, this year put in its 36th crop, 3,000 acres of soybeans. It's seeded every year for 36 years. We have hundreds and hundreds of concords that are more than 25 years old that are still operating. So. So we built it very rugged, and that's I think uh, part of the uh, reason for its success.
2: And then Kazakhstan is another right. uh, country where you've, right. you tell me about Kazakhstan and the reasons there. It's well, Kazakhstan, a similar. <coughs> yeah,
1: Kazakhstan's a lot like Western Canada. 30 million cropping acres, you know, wheat and canola, mainly wheat, lower rainfall area, but uh, huge farms. At one time there were three farms well over a million acres in Kazakhstan. All three of them have had some financial difficulties, so they're breaking up a little bit, but most of the farms are very, very sizable. Uh, an average farm might be 50,000 acres.
2: You talked a little bit about, um, one of the things that kind of drove you to, um, and this, I think this gets into your, you know, not only your interest in business and agriculture, but I think also you talk about faith and purpose. And I think that all came into play with Russia. And You talk about, there was a lot of extreme poverty there, you saw, yeah. and that kind of, how did, you know, tell me how that all intersects when you talk business, agriculture, yeah. your faith, how that all drove you?
1: Well, when I, when I started Concord in 1977, uh, I worked with crew at directed the work at the University of Florida, went to a seminary thinking, wanted to teach and uh, moving here in 77 i I wrote values down that i wanted to carry out through my career and one of them i wanted to have a life where there was no sacred secular dichotomy where all of life was sacred and uh, imperfectly i've tried to apply the golden rule in every business decision do unto others as you would have them do unto you and that really gets to the best of there's no good business transaction where there's not value added on both sides. Uh, if we sell a piece of machinery and our customer doesn't benefit, it's not good for him. If we sell it too cheap, it's not good for us. And so uh, good business really has a sense that there needs to be value added in both directions. And so that, uh, and then looking at every... Uh, employee, as, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, there are no ordinary people. Every person's created in the image of God. And so one of our values is to have no white-collar, blue-collar dichotomy in our company. So yesterday I had an employee luncheon that's almost like a quarterly board meeting. Every quarter I have a meeting with all our employees. I, I tell them same information I speak to our board about, where the business is at, some of the challenges, some of the victories, and then let them ask any questions they want about anything. And uh, and so it's valuing the employees as uh, significant parts of all that we do. And so there's, again, imperfectly, that's really been uh, what we've tried to do. And. Uh, And likewise, if you talk about Russia, we've had the privilege of supporting a lot of really good uh, causes in uh, Russia, including what was a great success for a lot of years, the only Christian liberal arts uh, school in Russia, and uh, still involved in supporting a lot of uh, very interesting uh, worthwhile projects.
2: I mean, there's risk involved. Of that obviously, and I, I think if I understand right, you probably had to write off some bad debt in 2008, maybe as a result of working in Russia too. And I mean,
1: number of times, number of times. yeah. We, and I should, I should learn. And sometimes I'm, I'm a little too trusting of some people, and so we've we've probably given more credit than uh, it might be an exaggeration. But perhaps we've given more uh, credit than even a deer or. Case or AGCO in in some cases, and uh, probably
2: and, goes it, back to wanting to see the best in people. Yeah,
1: and in the aggregate, it's it's worked out well. If you look at the total that we've written off over twenty seven years now, it's it's very very small percentage.
2: Going back to the AGCO joint venture. Um, why was the, the joint venture approach again, which you felt that was most attractive for your product?
1: Well, I was deeply afraid if we sold to AGCO like we'd sold the Case, the business could be destroyed. And I felt if we had a 50-50 joint venture working together, we had a higher probability of succeeding. And uh, so I wanted to make sure the business was going to sustain itself long term. And uh, we're still, still a work in progress.
2: No, I think not too long ago, I, th- I think uh, it was either Dave or Mike had done a story with you looking at the joint venture, and you, were, you thought it might double sales within a few years to maybe the $100 million level. How overall would you say the joint venture experience has gone? Has it reached its potential yet, or where would you
1: put it? it reached its potential in 2013, but in 2013 you could paint anything and call it farm equipment and it would have sold. Uh, we have not come close to reaching the potential that we that we have, and we're working very hard on, on that, both from an engineering and distribution standpoint. And uh, But anecdotally, the number one deer dealer in Russia, who also farms about 400,000 acres of land, on his own farm, he has 10 of our air seeders, and he's ordering three more for the spring. He's a John Deere dealer and a Vaterstad dealer, but. The fact that he's, uh, out of all this equipment he could buy, he's buying our equipment. It speaks, there's a message there, and that's what we're trying to uh, flesh out, that message. And uh, but, but it's a very crowded marketplace today. There's a, a lot of good European companies, Canadian companies, U.S. companies uh, that we're competing against.
2: What do you kind of remember about the early days of the business? What are some formative memories for you, uh, would you say?
1: Most formative, our bank called her line of credit in 1987, November 20th. It was a bleak time in the farm machinery business. And uh, I prayed and fasted for two and a half days, and uh, only one message came out of it, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So I wrote a letter to the 238 people that we owed money to, and I said, you all can uh, force a bankruptcy and you'll likely get nothing i believe our product is just on the verge of taking off and uh, we'd be prepared to give you preferred shares in our company you can simply um, wait but any ongoing business we do with you will pay cash but you can park the amount that we owe on the back burner until we can pay you back, or if we do get some cash flow and are willing to settle at 50 cents on the dollar on the existing debt, and then in the future we'll pay cash for new business. Out of the 238 creditors, only one moved against us. And I wrote letters to those creditors over the next uh, two years, every few months, And I got, at the end of that experience, I got letters from people thanking me for the way it was handled. Every one of them remained a supplier to us. And in some cases, some who'd been especially good to us, uh, one steel company in particular in 95, their total steel uh, quote was like $50,000 higher, and others and we gave them the business just as a thank you for what they had done for us. So we remained very loyal to those people and the only one that moved against us would have had a lot of business from us and they actually went into bankruptcy themselves in about 1994. So, so it was, uh, as far as memorable experiences, formative, that was very, very formative.
2: Well, you you talked about how you did graduate work and you went to divinity school, right? What was your plan for life's work as a young man? And it's interesting, you talked a little bit how that changed, too, but… Yeah.
1: Well, as a young man out of college, I I worked uh, at the University of Georgia and then directed the crew work at the University of Florida for three years. Just loved it, but I was asked so many questions by students as I talked to them about my faith that I had no answers for so I said I need to get answers so I went to seminary not for the purpose of being a pastor but for the purpose of getting answers for a lot of questions I had and so I did a philosophy of religion uh, master of arts and uh, it was life-changing to uh, and I I was as motivated as any student could have been and uh, and that really served me well for the whole of my life, uh, facing really tough questions. And, and then I think having the attitude that all truth is God's truth, not being afraid of any questions or any situations anybody faces. And, uh, and uh, so, it, yeah, it was just perfect preparation for what I've done.
2: Do you have a what you call your best day in business that you can recall?
1: Best day, well, a couple of things pop out and, it, and it, it's a very monetary situation. You go to Russia and you get an order for 200 air seeders in one order from one region of Russia. Uh, that was a good day. Or we were really struggling with our sugar beet equipment, but we believed that we could really help the Russian sugar beet farmers uh, improve and so we put a few units out with really good success. When I say few, maybe 35 in 2002. I go back in the fall of 2002, in January 2003, and I accept orders um, for 140 beet harvesters, and I come back, and nobody believes we can get them built. And it was, and we Never built half that many, and and so 140 domestic, 80 uh, or 140 export, 80 domestic in 2003, and uh, and actually the last order I took was for 50. That the guy wanted 70, and I said uh, I think we might be able to build 50, but you can't take the whole order that you want. So th- those days, you look back and say that. That was uh, very special.
2: Had worst days?
1: Well, bank calling or line of credit and uh, and I think uh, serial warranty issues in 1998, we put out a bunch of beet harvesters that during pre-harvest I realized we had some problems and I went out personally to five or six farmers to find out what the problem was and uh, And the, the warranty cost we had was uh, staggering it was and uh, And we felt to regain trust with those farmers We needed to do more than just repair the problems we needed to make some improvements, which we did so instead of it being a $400,000 warranty cost at that time. It became 800000 because we, again, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We caused some pain for farmers and we wanted to make sure that they were uh, really satisfied with our, our work. Right, right.
2: What were the things that your father and grandfather probably taught you that you've applied to business and uh, that you would hope is followed in the future?
1: Listen well to your customer. And, and make sure you have uh, something that is a value add for your for your customer. Um, but uh, dad, even on his deathbed in hospice care, wanted to know what are you doing that's new? And so never being contented with where you are, but always there's gotta be ways to improve and make things better. So make sure you're always looking at uh, the improvements.
2: As we go back to your dad, uh, Dave Koenicke, who's our senior editor at Farm Equipment, and Mike Lester had told me you shared a story about a a preamble, I think, that your dad wrote on every contract um, that lawyers would have advised him probably not to do. Yeah. And can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, he he said a lot of the contract. Well, he, he said business stopped being fun in about 1965 when no longer a handshake, and I give you my word, I'm going to do this. So in, at least in rural America, there was a sense that uh, your word is your bond. And if you had a choice of being an honorable person with a great reputation or having $10 million, you would have taken the honorable reputation. And uh, he, he uses the year 1965 to say things, and maybe part of it was the bobcat was growing so rapidly all over the world and uh, contracts were becoming much more necessary Uh, but a number of times if we get this big contract even we sold the case and uh, he'd say i want to be able to write something this is the intention of the contract this is what we're trying to do and he always had the view even when we uh, uh, he he was dead already but when we did our deal with uh, AGCO, his, his uh, thoughts were, were central in that five years from now, we want to look back on this contract and say it was a win-win. He, he, he said anybody who tries to have a win-lose on a contract, it's going to be a bad thing. And uh, so he always tried to express this. The only reason for this contract, it has to be best for both sides, and we need to make sure that five years from now we can look back and say we're glad we did this and so a lot of people think I need to get everything I can out of this contract and uh, if it goes bad in five years I'll have won and so that that's really the part of his thinking about a preamble. What about your
2: life's work in the business and probably at the very end of your career um, do you think you're going to be most proud of?
1: I, I would uh, I would say a lot of deep relationships uh with both employees dealers farmers uh, relationships that have been built uh, in many places that uh it's more than just a transaction there's a friendship and so i I'd, I'd say a lot of incredibly special friendships that uh, uh and 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 that's that really came from dad he uh he said if you can work in a company with people that are friends and you can sell to dealers who are friends and farmers who become friends, uh, that's, that makes business extra special.
0: Thanks to Howard for letting Darrell stretch his legs for a couple hours on his 1500 mile drive and for yet another opportunity to gain wisdom which Howard delivers to us at every city. And a word of thanks to Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting our time, travel, and production as we wrap up phase one of these interview projects, which have been great fun for me personally. Give them a look at www.osmundson.com. A special thanks again to Darrell for his excellent interview, and once again to Joe Kinsley at Lesseter Media for his stellar editing work. Till next time, I'm Mike Lesser of Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer, Signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipments Entrepreneurs.